This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. You're listening to episode 19 of the Giving Thought podcast. Um, this is the podcast from Charities Aid Foundation's uh, think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at all sorts of big issues in the news and beyond uh, that relate in some way to the world of philanthropy and civil society. Um, and actually, over the next two episodes, we're going to be looking at two linked themes that are amongst uh, the biggest of all that affect uh, our lives, death and taxes. Uh, Obviously, famously, according to Benjamin Franklin, although I think it's kind of apocryphal that it was him who first said it, um, there were only two certainties in life, those being death and taxes. So they seem like a good choice of uh, of themes to look at for the podcast. And in the first section, what I'm going to do is kick off by looking at a little bit of the history of death and philanthropy uh, and how mortality has shaped the way we give over the years in kind of interesting ways. So I guess it's worth saying, first of all, that the choice between whether to give during your lifetime or whether to wait until you die and then leave a legacy has been one that's always faced donors throughout the ages. And for a very long time, uh, the ball was very much in the court of legacies. And that was by far the most common way to give, partly because I think you know, culturally, people wanted to make their money during their life. And also, uh, giving was very much tied up with notions of religious responsibility and the afterlife. So it seemed natural to think about it at the point at which you were making your will or lying on your deathbed. But that had some interesting knock-on effects for some positive, some negative. And to have a look at some of the, the positive ones first, in Tudor London, for instance, there was a real rash of people leaving very verbiose eulogies um, that, that focused heavily on the charitable giving of the, the individual. So preachers would get up during the funeral of some famous uh, businessman, notable businessman who who died, and wax lyrical about how charitable they were and the great things that they'd given to which obviously encouraged other businessmen um, who wanted to have similarly effusive eulogies when they died uh, within their peer group in London. But also, interestingly, it had a real knock-on effect on philanthropy elsewhere in the country because these big London merchants were quite prominent figures and their eulogies would often be written up in newspapers that would make their way around the country. And then uh, smaller, uh, more modest local businessmen would see them and think, oh, I wouldn't mind people talking about me like that after I die. And they would start to copy the charitable exploits of those London businessmen. So there was a very kind of notable early peer group effect, which was interesting. Another positive way um, in which death kind of helped to shape philanthropy for the better, uh, although it has to be said probably not by design, more by accident, um, was through the introduction of a thing called the Statute of Mortmain, uh, in 1736, uh, which, you know, don't get too excited, but this is a piece of obscure tax law, but I'll try and make it interesting. Basically, it was a response to a problem the government perceived where the church at that time was starting to get a lot of money into through legacies and bequests. Um, and the government was worried about them building up a, an alternative power base. 
they were particularly worried that a lot of this money was coming from people making wills right on their deathbeds and that they worried people were being essentially bullied into it. Um, so what they did was they decided to make any bequest to a charity that wasn't made uh, a decent number of years in advance and in the, the uh, presence of at least two independent witnesses null and void or illegal uh, so as to make the problem impossible. And what this meant was that there was all of a sudden a perverse incentive um, both for lawmakers and those in the courts to interpret uh, charitable purpose as widely as possible uh, because obviously they were representing the next of kin who wanted to make sure they got the money rather than a charity. So if they had the best possible chance of making any charitable gift uh, invalid, they would go for it. So interpreting charity as widely as possible would help them. But also from the point of view of the, the foundations or the kind of obviously charitable structures, they were bending over backwards to try and claim that they weren't charitable because they didn't want to lose any donations through legacies. And what this eventually left us with is a very generous interpretation of what counts as charitable, certainly in UK charity law, and by extension in common law around the world, because that's often taken its lead from UK charitable law. And it seems to me that's quite a positive outcome in terms of a pluralistic definition of charity, although not necessarily with coming around from the best intentions. In terms of the negative side of the way that um, death has impacted on charity, the most obvious is the phenomenon of the dead hand of the donor. So this is the idea that if you have people giving on death and establishing an endowed structure, then the wishes that they make at that point in time are kind of frozen. Uh, and whilst they might make sense at that point of time, subsequently they might come to be seen as either wrong-headed or even totally impossible uh, to fulfil. Um, we've talked, I think, on the podcast before about the specific situation in Victorian London where there were all of these parochial trusts that existed from Tudor times, which many of which had purposes that could no longer be fulfilled. Um, there was one for celebrating the defeat of the Spanish Armada, uh, which didn't seem that relevant hundreds of years after the event, one for um, buying bunches of wood to burn heretics, um, which again seemed slightly less politically correct at that point in time. Um, and what eventually happened was that they boosted the power of the, the charity commissioners uh, at that point to enable them to break open these um, these void uh, found, uh, structures to get at the money and then distribute it. And they created a new system for doing that. And that also led eventually to the formation of the modern charity commission in the UK. There are also interesting examples of specific instances um, in which people have uh, left legacies, not with ill intention necessarily, but where they've made stipulations that meant they were very difficult to fulfil and this has caused problems. Um, one particular case is, I think, called the Brown Animal Sanitary Institution, um, which was based on a legacy left by a donor called Thomas Brown in the mid-19th century. And he left a lot of money to the University of London for founding an institution that would study and treat diseases of animals and birds that were kind of that were useful to man at that time. Um, but unfortunately, uh, in his desire to make sure that his wishes were implemented, he introduced quite a lot of extra stipulations, uh, particularly that it had to be within a mile of Westminster, Southwark or Dublin. Um, and if the university didn't use the money within 19 years, the University of London, it would instead go to the University of Dublin for the exclusive purpose of establishing a professorship in at least three of the following languages, Welsh, Slavonic, Russian, Persian, Chinese, Coptic or Sanskrit, which 
is a very odd set of donors' wishes, and understandably, um, it was very hard to fulfil the first criterion because property in those places was extremely expensive. Um, so the University of London held on to the money for 19 years, and then at that point, there was a big legal challenge from the University of Dublin. Um, to make things more complicated, by that point, people weren't really using animals in cities quite so much, so there wasn't so much point in setting up an institution of this kind. Um, and eventually what happened, uh, I think in 1971, so 120 years later, was that this was finally decided and that the money was shared between the University of London and Trinity College Dublin. But it goes to show the problems that can be created when a donor's wishes are made sacrosanct. And to make things even worse, there are genuinely bad faith legacies. So there are some people who deliberately uh, introduce clauses in their charitable legacy that's either designed to make it very difficult to fulfil or actively spite other people. So at the silly end of the spectrum, um, there was an example of a donor called Cornelius Christmas who stipulated that he would uh, leave a bequest from which the income was to be distributed uh, in the form of bread, coals and money to the poor of Great Yarmouth in the week before Christmas Day, every year hereafter and at no other time forever. Uh, which seems a bit odd. Uh, and one I quite liked is there was a man called Thomas Nash who left uh, a bequest uh, basically in order to insult his wife. So he lived in ba- in the city of Bath in, in here in the UK and he left money to the bell ringers of Bath Abbey on the condition that every year on the anniversary of his wedding day, uh, they should play um, doleful, sad music. And then on the anniversary of his death, uh, it, quote, they should ring a grand Bob major and merry mirthful peals unmuffled during the same space of time uh, in joyful commemoration of my happy release from domestic tyranny and wretchedness, which is, you know, that's going out of your way to spite your wife after your death. And on the same lines, there's a great story of uh, recounted in the Times from the late 19th century of a lawyer in Toronto who ironically bequeathed a fortune of $2 million. Um, so he gave brewery shares to strongly prohibitionist Methodist ministers. Uh, he gave shares in racing courses to people who were opposed to gambling. And uh, he said that um, if they didn't actively participate in supporting gambling after nine years, the, um, the bequest would go to whichever woman in Ontario had the largest family in the meantime. So he obviously just liked stirring things up and used his bequest as a way of doing that. So that's a kind of whistle-stop tour of the way in which death has played kind of quirky, odd role in shaping philanthropy for better or worse. Um, and in the next section, we're going to go on and look at how some of those themes have developed into the modern context and where things currently stand around the question of death and philanthropy. back for section two and so as i said before the break in this section we're just going to have a bit of a look at where things stand currently in terms of the relationship between mortality and philanthropy i think the first thing to say is that whilst the balance um from giving after death towards giving um while living has shifted notably um, which we'll come on to in a minute Legacy giving remains a very important form of giving in the UK and elsewhere, and still a lot of money is left through bequests after death. Um, There are still challenges with this as well. Um, One of them that we see probably a lot more of nowadays is around uh, next of kin making legal challenges. And there have been some uh, cases over the last few years in the UK, quite high profile cases, where 
people have challenged the decision of a of a deceased person to leave money to a specific charity either on the grounds that they claim that person was mentally infirm or they claim that it was spiteful that they weren't leaving the money and actually charities have been forced to challenge some of those decisions in the high court um and in a couple of cases um they've lost so that the the legacy has has been um made void and the charity can no longer get that money which goes to show one of the problems with legacy giving which is that until you've actually got the money in your bank account as a charity um it's not necessarily guaranteed even if it's written down in in a will um also in practical terms the reality of having to go to court and challenge um uh, somebody a next of kin uh, criticizing a legacy is that even if the charity won in the end, it doesn't really look very good. It's an expensive thing to do. It's very time-consuming, and it's just not a great look for a charity to have to go and argue the toss with uh, the next of kin of somebody who's recently died. Um, so, you know, it's a situation best avoided, if at all possible. And I think, you know, there might be some interesting ways of doing that in the future, which we'll discuss in the next section. Coming back to whether the balance has shifted, um, there's definitely been an increasing prominence given to the idea of giving while living. So at a kind of major donor level, um, there was quite a lot around this uh, two years ago, about 18 months ago, because um, it was the point at which the Atlantic Philanthropies, which was set up by an Irish um, millionaire or billionaire donor called Chuck Feeney, uh, finally stopped making grants after 34 years because Feeney was always a very strong proponent of the idea of giving while living and he'd always had it in his mind that he would set up a foundation, billions of uh, dollars, um, but that it wouldn't exist in perpetuity and it, it stopped making grants in 2016 and is going to totally shut its doors in 2020. But also some other big foundations similarly have those kinds of plans. So the Gates Foundation, for instance, has it written into its constitution um, that after the death of its main trustees, I think it will exist for no longer than 20 years. Um, and other big foundations in the US, like the Edna mcconnell Clark uh, Foundation, have quite recently said that they're going to be spending down their assets over a defined period of time. Um also, the, the emergence of the giving pledge has been quite an important uh, factor here. So this is the the big um, initiative led by Warren Buffett and Bill Gates in the States, where they have got an extraordinary number, really, of um, very wealthy people in the US and increasingly around the world to make pledges that they will give away at least half of their wealth before death. So obviously this puts in, you know, I don't think they stipulate that that can't be put into an endowed structure of some kind, but it puts a huge emphasis on the idea of doing philanthropy while you're, you're alive. And also another trend that plays into this is the, um, the emergence of the new breed of Silicon Valley donor, um, because I think more so than people from many other uh, industries or walks of life. There are lots of people who've made extraordinary amounts of money at a very early age. I mean, we think of people like Mark Zuckerberg, who's, you know, I think only in his mid-30s and already one of the richest people in the world. And a lot of them uh, are thinking about philanthropy much earlier on, um, either as a shift in focus from their commercial uh, work or something that they do alongside it. And obviously, that again puts a huge emphasis on the idea of 
doing you know giving whilst living because they want to get on with it now and be hands on and, and see the impact of it. I guess the the question before we move on to the next section, um, looking uh, a bit towards the future, is whether there are any downsides um, to this shift towards giving while living. I mean, the upsides I think are, are pretty obvious. You know, and oft cited, which is um, you know you can involve the donor; uh, they'll get more engaged. They can bring the benefits of their business acumen, experience, and engagement, as well as just the money. Um, and all these sorts of things. And I think that's absolutely true for a lot of very committed philanthropists. I guess one downside is whether uh, not having structures that are designed to exist for the longer term or even in perpetuity um, kind of loses some of the benefit that we've seen from the sort of philanthropic foundation over the years. Because there's definitely something to be said, I think, for the idea of an endowed structure that can sit outside the short-term political and commercial cycles um, and take a long-term view of issues um, and how you square that with people's desire to do giving while living or spend down I'm not quite sure anyway in the next section uh, we're going to have a little bit of a look at what the future for death <laughs> odd thing to be saying but what the future for death and philanthropy might bring so stay tuned And so this is the last section, as I say, and in this one, we're going to have a bit of a look towards what the future might bring. Um, and this is something I've been thinking about a bit recently um, because of a blog post that I finally got around to writing, sort of mulling on some of this stuff. Um, and I think there's a couple of things that I think are interesting, um, some more pragmatic and short term and some definitely longer term, which we'll come on to. Um the first one, I think, is is around the the inevitable use of blockchain. Um, you know, if you want to solve the problem nowadays, I think you basically just need to put a blockchain on it, from what I understand. Um, but I say that as somebody who has been uh, promoting the idea of blockchain for a few years now. But I think there's actually quite an interesting uh, use case here around the idea of wills. Because um, obviously one of the challenges with wills is that they can be challenged, Um and also they require intermediation because you need a trusted intermediary like a solicitor um, to draw them up in the first place. And since blockchain is a technology that largely uh, seeks to do away with intermediaries uh, whilst maintaining trust uh, and is immutable and lends itself to a high degree of automation, I think it could be very interesting, this contract. If you assume that wills could be recorded on the blockchain uh, or a blockchain rather than using a traditional solicitor, well, firstly, you might be able to reduce the cost of doing it, so more people would draw up a will in the first place, um, which would be good because a lot of people still die in test state. Um, it might also have interesting implications at the point at which somebody died because you, instead of having to go through an expensive legal process of probate mediated by a solicitor and an executor, you, if the terms of the will were enshrined in smart contracts, the process of doing that could be automated so that it would not be possible to challenge subsequently because those terms would be immutable. Now, I'm sure there are some downsides of that. And actually, there's fascinating work going on uh, at the moment in kind of legal theory around the legal status of smart contracts. Um, but it strikes me as something that could solve some of the problems in terms of legacy giving from the point of view of charities. Um, much more broadly, I think the, the changing nature of mortality is going to provide both quite a lot of opportunities and challenges for, for charities and for philanthropy. So I'm thinking here of a couple of things. I think 
at a societal level, we already know that populations are living longer on average um, because you know, medical care and public health is is getting better, and that's probably a good thing, I think. Um, but that does lead to challenges potentially in terms of overpopulation, which a, a lot of organisations, charities included, are already trying to deal with. Um, but even at an individual level, I think the advances in biotechnology and, and life extension technology means that people might, over the, the coming decades, be able to incrementally increase their own life expectancy through the use of technologies like CRISPR and other things like that, um, so that they they will live you know, 10 years more and then subsequently 10 years more. And actually, we, we might already have walking among us people who are going to live to 150, even 200. Um, and I think there are some interesting questions about what that means at an individual level in terms of um physical health you know because um it would be problematic if people were able to live that much longer and medical science didn't keep up with it so we just created a huge population of much older people who required um significant amounts of care but also in terms of things like mental health and well-being um and also social interactions and family structures we don't really know at this point what you know, the mental health or the kind of family relations of a 150-year-old or 200-year-old person would be. And given that charities often have to deal with issues like, you know, uh, deteriorating family relations, uh, social problems and uh, mental health problems, it strikes me that it might create a lot of new challenges that charities would have to deal with. I think there's also some interesting uh, possible ramifications for the sorts of issues we've been talking about already in the podcast around things like the the dead hand of the donor. So, you know, you'll recall this is the problem where you have a donor who establishes their wishes at a certain point in time and then subsequently find that they no longer um, make sense or they don't kind of meet the needs of society further down the line. But what if that donor is still alive? So what if you have a donor who lives to 200 years old and they uh, either subsequently change their mind or probably more likely don't, or they still carry with them the views that were formed um, at a different point in time. So if we're talking now, for example, what if we still had Victorian donors hanging around with us? I mean, what if we still had you know, Rockefeller or Angela, Angela Bedette Coutts or George Peabody uh, still alive and still in control of their own foundations rather than having handed on to an independent group of trustees. Um, it strikes me that there would be some potentially very problematic situations in which they had certain social views and attitudes that they were you know, unwilling to let go that made it very difficult for their philanthropy to be relevant in the future. Um, I think looking one step further ahead again, uh, and this is where it definitely starts to veer off into the realms of, of science fiction, I explored in this blog the um, the possibility of digital emulation or simulation. So the idea that you could upload your consciousness or personality into a computer, um, computer virtual environment of some sort, and have that be the way that you continued either at the point of death or earlier on if you chose to. Um, and this is something that people are starting to contemplate quite seriously now in an age of kind of accelerating development in AI. Um, and I think there's potentially something very interesting there for uh, philanthropy. You would have the same problem, I think, in terms of the living hand of the donor that we were talking about just now with um, donors who kind of 
aged uh, beyond normal life expectancy um, in a standard way. But there's an additional question of what the legal status of those emulations would be. Um, so I just think there's a fascinating scenario in which, again, you have um, digital emulation of a donor. Um, so, for example, you've got digital J.D. Rockefeller, and he's still uh, there in digital form, sitting as a member of the board on his foundation and uh, shaping decisions. But what if that emulation disagrees with the original living version of J.D. Rockefeller somewhere down the line, um, or even with the living trustees? What is the legal status of that emulation and what right does does it or he have to challenge those decisions? Um, I mean, as I say, these are pretty speculative questions, but I think they're the sorts of things that are well, both interesting but also worth thinking through, um, partly because I think there's a, a level of preparedness for the future that I think most of philanthropy and the foundation world needs to, to start doing now. But also they're kind of interesting thought experiments to shed light on some of these long-standing problems. Anyway, having uh, having taken a tour into the world of uh, digital emulations of J.D. Rockefeller, I think I'll pull things to a close there. Um, so as I say, next week we'll be following this up with part two on taxes, in which I will attempt to make uh, tax and philanthropy interesting for about 25 minutes. Uh, so stay tuned for that one. Um, but all it remains for me to say now is thanks very much for listening. Hope you've enjoyed it. Um, if you've got any ideas um, for things we should be doing on the podcast or ways we can make it better, um, drop me a line at givingthought@cafonline.org. Uh, as ever, I'll put links to relevant stuff in the show notes for the show. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis. Check out the Giving Thought pages on the CAF website. And otherwise, tune in next time. Bye. Bye.